Hello, this is Nick Holland with Information Security Media Group. And today I'm talking with David Forsey, who is Managing Director of the Aspen Cybersecurity Group, which is a part of the Aspen Institute. David, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Pleasure Great. to be here. So, yeah, um, fascinating reports just come out. Um, it's a national cybersecurity agenda for resilient digital infrastructure. Um, extremely timely, I guess, given the current events with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the, the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department, and so on, uh, in terms of the uh, ongoing solar winds breach and uh, the, obviously the... Um, Maybe we knew something. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, clearly it's uh, never more timely than, than it is right now to maybe consider how we can work towards something that is more resilient in terms of digital infrastructure. Um, so, I mean, first things first, David, let's have a little chat about the report uh, methodology. So, what came, you know, what was the purpose? Uh, when was it conducted and, and who contributed to that? Yeah, so, you know, real quick, Aspen Institute 501c3 based in Washington, D.C., with a campus in Aspen, but we're based in DC. Um, we drive change through dialogue leadership and aim to solve really big problems. Practically speaking, we're kind of like a think tank that specializes in convening really awesome people so they can solve problems faster. So the Aspen Cybersecurity Group is this standing multidisciplinary forum to bring together lawmakers, policymakers, industry executives, security, security professionals, and we really want to operationalize consensus solutions to cybersecurity challenges, which I know your viewers care a lot about. Mm -hmm. So what's really important to note, though, is that is who is saying this, right? So the Aspen Cybersecurity Group is not just another CISO group, and, and I'm not knocking CISO groups, and, and we have a lot of CISOs on the group, right? right? But it's also Vince Cerf at Google. It's the general counsel at AIG, the big insurer, and Apple. It's the CEO of Northrop Grumman and Johnson Johnson, Congressman Will Hurd, Congressman Jim Langevin, uh, former NSA directors. So when we speak, we speak with many different perspectives, and that's essential because it means that a lot of the ideas we put out there are often less likely to run into the kind of Washington buzzsaw that often yeah. greets a lot of really good ideas in cybersecurity, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, with what happened in November, whatever happened, um, there was going to be an important transition period with a lot of people reassessing priorities, a lot of leadership change, staff turnover. Uh, and we really wanted to focus the White House and Congress on some actionable areas in cybersecurity, well, we felt maybe not enough attention is being paid and where there's some serious opportunity for real progress in the next term. So, you know, next two to four years. So that's where we focused. And again, I mean, the, looking at the current members, it is something of a who's who. I mean, there's, there's a number of folks on here who have, again, we've we had in our studio, such as uh, General Keith Alexander, mm -hmm. uh, Don Dixon, um, General Michael Hayden. So it, it's, it's clearly a good cross-section of uh, private and public sector and so on. So it's uh, very, very holistic, I would say, in terms of who it's encompassing. Um, yeah, we meet, and we meet three times a year with current policymakers in the federal government, right? That's really our goal is to touch them, so. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, so let's, let's dive into the report itself, um, or, or, you know, some of the, the key components of that. So there are, there are five action steps in there. Uh, there's education and workforce development, there's securing the internet's public core, supply chain security, measuring cybersecurity, and promoting operational collaboration. And then there's sort of an, an addendum with some other sort of subsects on that. Um, let, can we go through those then? I think, I mean, start first of all with, uh, you know, the, the first one, which is education and workforce development. And there's a subheading for that, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion in cyberspace is a national security issue. Um, th th this isn't any news right i mean with you know who no. are you talking to? it's, it's there's, there's a constant shortfall of 
you know, depending on which report you look to, one million to three million uh, people when it comes to cybersecurity. And this is, you know, just ongoing. So, I mean, how do you, we start plugging that perennial shortage in cybersecurity jobs? So it's first important to acknowledge that, you know, different people use different terms, but the terminology matters because we don't have a jobs gap. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, we have a jobs gap and we have a skills gap, uh, but we don't have a talent gap. So right. we know the talent is out there, right? We have, the United States at least, has 520,000 open cybersecurity jobs today. So that's compared to 212 million working age adults. Mm-hmm. So if just 0.2% of the people out there are interested and capable in cybersecurity roles, we can fix the problem, right? So we don't need some million dollar study to know that at least 0.2% of people can do this stuff. It's not rocket science. And what we need is a better pipeline that gets them interested and steers them toward open jobs. So the good news is we actually already have a lot of really great initiatives going on. They really just need to be resourced more effectively and coordinated more consistently. So some practical things we can do. One is that many employers, both companies and federal agencies, really need to just expand the pool of talent they draw from. A lot of our hiring practices artificially restrict the number of people who can actually apply to these jobs. I'll give you an example. And I'll bet you a lot of your listeners are nodding their head when they hear this. Why do so many entry-level cybersecurity roles require a CISSP, which is really a mid-level management certificate? They don't have to. Why do so many cybersecurity entry-level roles require four-year degrees? Now, I'm not bashing four-year degrees, but they just, a lot of them don't need them. And when you talk to security managers, this is often a point of frustration. They're happy to take people. I mean, there are a lot of community colleges that are certified by the NSA that are two-year degrees, right? They're two-year programs, right? So people need to look at their job qualifications. In some cases, you might actually require a four-year degree for a good reason, but in many cases, it's just pro forma and it doesn't need to be there. Also, how job descriptions are actually written. The language you use, we know, can be biased in unintentional ways, and that can actually put off a lot of potential job candidates. So we need to expand the talent aperture by changing how we're hiring, right? So another key point that we that is very practical and very doable is creating a centralized pipeline for instructors in industry who would love to volunteer their time in educational institutions. So the lack of in- instructors is a huge, uh, huge obstacle here, right? especially to scaling a lot of the good education that's going on. But if you work in a cybersecurity company today or a technology company, uh, there isn't really one place to go to get connected to a school that could use your help, right? So Microsoft has a great program called Teals that does this. We just need more of that. The federal government can play a huge role in terms of being the nexus that connects schools, connects people who are interested in volunteering their time at schools, right? Um, Two more things I'll just say. A lot of organizations out there that are already doing a lot of great work in the space. Uh, cyber.org, people can check them out. NPower, Partnership for Public Service, Women in Cybersecurity. All these organizations can scale up, but we need the federal government to take a leadership role in providing more grants because what a lot of people might not realize is in the philanthropic space, there are not, there's not a lot of people giving when it comes to nonprofit cybersecurity mm-hmm. causes. Um, there are a few and anyone in the space knows them. And so we really need both the federal government and philanthropy to step up and start taking this more seriously. And then finally, we just need a coherent leadership structure for federal cybersecurity workforce development. Again, a lot of federal agencies are doing a lot of stuff in the space. There's duplication. People aren't learning from each other. There needs to be one committee-like structure that actually makes sure we're not making the same mistakes twice, duplicating efforts. So we talk about stuff like that. Okay, excellent. So moving on to the next uh, action step. Securing the internet's public core. Uh, And again, the subheading here is global leadership requires 
protecting the foundation of the internet. Um, I mean, the internet was never built with security in mind. So, I mean, is, is there any way we can actually fix the internet uh, in terms of securing it? Well, you know, when we say the public core here, what we're really re referencing is the foundational shared infrastructure that runs the internet. So we are talking the domain name system, the border gateway protocol, public key infrastructure, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, uh, position navigation timing is another big one. The good news is, even while a lot of these systems were not built with security in mind, we don't have to build a whole new internet. Because for the most part, uh, and this isn't always the case, but in general, and this is oversimplifying it, but we know how to get most of the way there. A lot of the network operators out there already know how to dramatically improve the security of the domain name system or the border gateway protocols. If listeners are interested, they should check out the mutually agreed norms for routing security. It's called Manners, run by the Internet Society. Bunch of internet work, uh, network operators getting together and saying, hey, we can do this if we just do X, Y, and Z. We also know how to build much more resilient GPS receivers, right? That's key to position navigation and timing. Um, we are already designing public cryptographic protocols that can resist future quantum-based decryption, right? This is something NIST uh, is leading and they're doing a great job on it. So it's really not a technical problem. When it comes to the public core, the issue is that no one person is in charge, right? That's the whole idea. Right. It's the shared infrastructure. And so this is where the federal government could really take play a key role not necessarily in implementing this stuff. A lot of this is actually not the federal government running it, right? But in really showing leadership and coordinating between organizations. It makes a big difference if the Secretary of Homeland Security calls the CEO of this network, you know, choose your network operator and says, hey, listen, we've decided that Portal Gateway Protocol is a priority. We'd really love to have a meeting with you to figure out what you're doing. We're not talking about regulation. It's, we're talking about leadership, right? Um, so we really wanted, we thought this really needed to be held up because a lot of these vulnerabilities are the kinds of things that could really cause massive damage if a committed adversary were um, bent on, bent on, you know, wanted to. So yeah, okay. Let, let's move on to the next one, which is I think the most um, I'd say uh, timely given what's going on right now, which is supply chain security. And again, the subheading here is more choice leads to lower risk and. I mean, we're seeing in real time um, the, the fallout of uh, what, what might be the poster child of, you know, supply chain risk in terms of solar winds, fire eye. And uh, again, what's what's occurred with the Department of Homeland Security, Treasury, uh, multiple other entities, plus the, you know, hundreds of other organizations that have been impacted by this. Um, I think the question here is really, what is the solution here? If we're moving to potentially greater polarization when it comes to uh, software vendors, particularly in the cloud, and, and rather than, you know, uh, more risk, sorry, more choice. Yeah, so this issue gets complicated fast. Um, obviously, we're learning a lot more about what's happening. We probably won't know the full details for some time. Um, I do encourage listeners to check out uh, Alex Stamos, who's a member of the Espen Cybersecurity mm -hmm. Group, had a really great op-ed in the Washington Post today. Um, also some interesting commentary on Twitter. I think what's, what SolarWinds really illustrates is how supply chain security is two different things from the perspective of public policy, right? So the first thing is what we've been talking about for the past four years, which is the Huawei 5G thing, which is a very narrow part of it, right? National level policy to ensure that critical industries are not dependent on components of technology 
that they can't trust, either because they're poorly made or designed, or because they're owned or in controlled by entities that we feel we can't trust for whatever reason, right? Um, so that's the whole Huawei and 5G conversation. But what SolarWinds shows us is that there's this other piece. Uh, and, and, and folks in industry, this isn't new, but which is how organizations manage their own supply chains, including software, not just hardware, and, and how we can help shape incentives for suppliers to have more secure systems, right? So what it shows is that attackers don't have to build some elaborate global hardware supply chain to insert a backdoor into a router way before it gets into your company. They can just go after the software companies, many of them actually US-based, that your company already depends on, right? So that's a much more difficult matter to address when it comes to federal policy, because you can't just say, oh, well, we're going to ban any software companies that are based in Russia, mm. right, uh, from being used in critical infrastructure, because the problem isn't just based on country of origin, it's just endemic to software, right? Right. Um, but where the government can really help, uh, especially proactively, is incentivizing transparency into coding practices, right. building on things like, you know, DOD has a cybersecurity maturity model certification. Um, how can we apply lessons that the defense industrial base has learned right. when it comes to supply chain risk management, right? So I think it's very important to make sure that CISOs and CIOs have an easier time knowing what is actually in the software they're using, right? Yeah. I'd also direct listeners to some great work that Alan Friedman is leading at the uh, NTIA on um, uh, software bill of materials, which is essentially right. an ingredient list for software. So there is stuff we can do yeah. Um, yeah. when it comes to supply chain and software. Absolutely. We, again, had an interesting discussion with Ron Ross at NIST earlier on again, and he's, he's moving much more into DevSecOps as an area to concentrate on. So again, back to the foundational level, get, get the code right as that, you know, the, the fundamental building blocks. And then um, the problem being that the, the horse has already left the stable for a lot of these organizations, right? So... Correct. So going forward, it's, um, and again, you know, I hate to respect the attackers, but um, moving to a country that was fairly benign and below the surface, uh, as, as SolarWinds was, um, was fairly clever of them, I thought. Well, and that's exactly what DOD's CMMC tries to get at, right? I mean, you've got, when you're building something like, um, I mean, take uh, the F-35, right? How many tiny suppliers do you have that make very right. important components? And that's a hardware issue, but... Those principles also apply in software, especially when you've got a lot of these software packages that are based on open source libraries that no one has really taken a look at. Right. So that's actually another thing we call for in the report is really there needs to be much more funding of a lot of the open source community to make sure that, you know, a lot of these systems are managed by shoestring operations and they just can't keep them secure without more resources. So Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, moving on, um, we have two more action items left, action steps left. Um, the fourth one makes a, a lot of sense to me, which is measuring cybersecurity, which is, again, clearly you can't uh, track what you can't measure. And or as you say here in the subheading, you can't solve problems if you don't know what works and what doesn't. Um, and then the, set, the five, fifth and final one is promoting operational collaboration. And again, the subheading is the government doesn't control cyberspace. The road to success runs through the boardroom. Um, so I think it's the same question for both, which is really, I mean, the first one is who's responsible for the metrics. And then per the second one, you know, it's whose job is it to do this? Where do we start the journey in terms of, uh, you know, the government doesn't doesn't control cyberspace. Uh, it, it is something that is, you know, clearly at uh, a, a level that is uh, very much on 
the public side of things or the private side of things rather. Um, you know, so who, who, who is responsible for this going forward? And how do we get this buy-in? Yeah, so on the first piece, I do want to differentiate, and we do in the report, between data and metrics. Now, that might sound like semantics, but, you know, we're communicating to policymakers here, and we wanted to be very clear. When we talk about data, what we're talking about is, like, national-level data on what the state of cybersecurity in the nation actually is. And who's responsible for that? That is clearly a federal role. Because no one else is going to do it. No one else is doing it. So, and when they are, it's proprietary and they're not going to share it, right? Um, So, I mean, can you imagine if hospitals didn't share their COVID hospitalization rates? No, that'd be crazy. You would have no idea how bad the pandemic is in which, where it is, where it's, where the hotspots are. You wouldn't know where to direct resources. So when it comes to data, right? Like things like how many organizations are actually getting hit with ransomware? How are they getting hit? What kind of ransomware? How much do they actually spend on security? Is there a correlation? That's something where you need something like a Bureau of Cyber Statistics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a new organization. It was recommended by the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission. We certainly support it. Now, it doesn't have to be a new organization. It could be in an existing or, uh, body like NIST. Um, but, you know, you really want someone who's dedicated to it. You need an office with people whose sole goal is to gather this data. Um, when it comes to metrics, you know, those are, that's much more detailed information and with a whole taxonomy about how an organization actually assesses return on investment, right, for a cybersecurity program. Um, and first and foremost, the federal government has to gather that data for itself. And a lot of people would say that they haven't done a very good job on that. Um, right now, the Office of Management and Budget is in charge of that kind of oversight through uh, FISMA, which is a federal statute. I, and we certainly need to take another look at FISMA. And that's something that is probably going to be a priority for some folks in Washington in, in the year ahead. Um, and but then, but before the federal government asks the industry to do anything with metrics, they have to show that they can use metrics effectively themselves. And then they can say, "Hey, look, industry, look, we've done all this useful stuff. We have all these useful insights. Would you guys mind taking this stuff down too, and then sharing it with us, and then we can help generate insights for all of you, right?" So, data first, metrics later government first, industry later, and then voluntary first and mandatory later. So we're not trying to mandate anything. It's just not going to work. On operational collaboration, um, this is a different problem. And I think it's just first helpful to just lay out the problem real quick. So right now we have very highly capable actors in the private sector and some highly capable actors in the government. When they operate alone, often their own silos, it's just the same game of whack-a-mole we've been playing for decades, going after this attacker, but then that same attacker pops up over here. They change their tactics, they go over here. But when we combine the incredible tactical level intelligence in the private sector, the equally incredible technical capabilities in the private sector, and the strategic intelligence and legal authorities that public sector agencies and departments have, that's when we see that we can impose much greater costs on adversary networks, right? And like, just practically speaking, right? This is where, this is where Microsoft and the Cyber Threat Alliance and the FBI all coordinate at once to shut down, shut down the servers, seize the servers, freeze the assets all at once, right? That's what will shock the adversaries, as opposed to just taking down some accounts here and then, oh, they just move over to this network. So that's what we're trying to do. And who's responsible is, not surprisingly both the public and private sector. But the first step we'd really like the administration to focus on is having leadership at the highest level 
starting with the president, setting clear, explicit policy that pushes more agencies, and even in the national security space, to engage on a more continuous basis with their counterparts in key private sector companies. You know, and, and not all companies, right? We're just talking about companies who are really highly capable, the ones that can launch joint operations, the one that have network control. Um, and a lot of government lawyers will tell you, oh, well, we're not allowed to do that, but that's just often not the case. And so that, that's why it takes leadership to get over that hump. Um, the authorities are there and where they're not, well, great, they should be changed in certain circumstances. So we're not even talking about sharing classified information, right? We're just talking about making sure this analyst at this agency actually knows and trusts this operator at this big MSSP or Microsoft or what have you. Um, so the first step is just overcoming this cultural barrier by getting leadership in the federal government to say, listen, we know you as an intelligence agency believe that your first mission is delivering information on the intentions and capabilities of adversaries to the president. However, we think it is also part of your role to work more closely with the private sector and cybersecurity because cyberspace is run by the private sector and success, as you say, runs through the boardroom. So that's the idea behind operational collaboration, but, but it's really everyone's responsibility. Right. So, but as you say, it comes from the top. So obviously we're a bit of, in a right. bit of holding pattern until January. Uh, and then hopefully, obviously the next administration takes um, this national cybersecurity agenda and uh, as an action item. But I mean, what are our next steps, um, David? Uh, next steps are for, it's <laughs> a great question. Um, so we plan, I mean, we're based in DC, so we plan on engaging in a robust engagement strategy over the next year with uh, staffers on the Hill, members of Congress, new and existing lawmakers, the administration, of course, there will now be a national cyber director, um, which will certainly be lead on a lot of these types of initiatives. Um, and so we'll be pushing very hard. I mean, the way we operate is we meet three times a year with those types of people, right? We'll constantly invite them to. So we have a built-in uh, ability to socialize, but also getting a little more detailed, right? A lot of this stuff is high level. So we want to get a little more detailed. We also um, work with industry quite a bit. And so building coalitions that can actually commit to these types of things, um, finding how, you know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? But finding how things like the enduring security framework, which already exists, can help support some of these things, because um, a lot of these are, again, consensus issues. So yeah. we're, this is basically also kind of our strategy for what we are going to help the federal government achieve over the next couple of years. So it's kind of our own guidepost too. Good. Well, I mean, certainly we're more than happy to help evangelize and you know, promote it through our own channels and hopefully uh, articulate and educate um, the, the key initiatives of the Aspen Cybersecurity Group. Absolutely. And Nick, you know, we're here to be a nexus for the whole community. So any of your listeners, if they're interested in getting involved, interested in learning more, whether as individual researchers or as an organization, please, uh, they should feel free to reach out to us. Fantastic. Well, that's, um, that's absolutely great speaking with you, David. That's David Forsey of the Aspen Cybersecurity Group and for Information Security Media Group. I'm Nick Holland. Thank you.